I invite you to turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 13. We'll be looking this morning at another segment of the story of the kingship of Saul. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's Word. For the Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan, was defeated, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about six hundred men. 
And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there were no blacksmiths to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening the axes and the setting of the goads. So on the day of the battle there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you to hear from you in your word. We pray that by the power of your spirit, you would show us the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be changed, that we might be made more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. We all experience some struggles, don't we? There are challenges in our homes, at work, at school. But the question is, where do you turn in the midst of your struggles? When you know that there are challenges ahead, where do you turn for hope and answers? This morning we're going to look at 1 Samuel 13 that gives us advice on how to deal with struggles and even hopelessness. That there is provision for us to be found in the Lord Himself. We see this as we come to yet another stage of the kingship of Saul. As he has great challenges in front of him once again. And so this morning I would like us to see three aspects to our text. First, we see that Israel experiences trouble instead of contentment. Israel might have hoped to be content and to have a life of ease, but instead, trouble is still on the horizon. Secondly, we see that it is much better to trust instead of to use our sight. Trust instead of sight. And then third, we see the provision of our Lord of hope instead of hopelessness. Trouble instead of contentment trust instead of sight, and hope instead of hopelessness. Let's begin then by looking at the trouble that has come to Israel instead of the contentment that they expected. Now Israel had brought upon itself a king. And the matter of the kingship, if we are honest with ourselves, has had its ups and downs as we've been looking at it. Clearly, The people of Israel had sinned in asking for a king. 
And Saul's initial appearance left a great deal to be desired, didn't it? He was being hailed as king, and they said, where's the king? Oh, he's, he's hiding with the luggage. Not exactly the way you want a coronation to go off. But Saul had defeated the Ammonites. He had done that through the provision of the Lord God. And Samuel had given both Israel and Saul the path forward under the kingship. That they were to obey the Lord their God, to heed His commands, and when they did so, it would go well with them. So, while at this time, at least I'm not ready to be a wild optimist about Saul's reign as king, there is a sense in which we can look at this and have good expectations. Now, what you have to do here is you have to take the text as it comes. Don't blunt the effect of the text by the fact that you know what comes in 1 Samuel 15 and 16 and 28. Take the text as it comes. After all, let's give Saul a chance to be king, shall we? And so right now what we have is the classic introduction of a king in chapter 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now, if we were to go to the book of First and Second Kings, we would see a very similar formula. But one thing would be very different than the amount of the years. This verse is one of the most difficult in all of the Bible. The Hebrew is very difficult because there are numbers that seem to have been left off, almost as if some commentators say the, the scribe was writing, he didn't know exactly how old Saul was, so he left a blank and then forgot to go back. Now, different translations translate this different ways. The first version of the ESV actually leaves blanks with a footnote, the numbers have dropped out. It just says years and, and years. Now, what is difficult about this is the Hebrew seems to read that Saul was one year old. He was the son of a year. If we were to go to the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, that's not much more help. Someone has just put in the numbers 30 and 40. And they don't seem to make much sense because I don't know too many 30-year-olds that have a son of an age to lead an army, which is what Jonathan is doing. And that only occurs in a few manuscripts in the Septuagint. The best solution seems to be what we have right here, that Saul lived for one year after his anointing, and then reigned for two more years legitimately. Now, Let me give you a word here about inerrancy. When we talk about the Bible being inerrant, you hear me say that each and every time before I preach. It does not mean that there is not one single copying error in all of the manuscripts of the Bible. That would be impossible, you see, because the Bible is unlike any other book. If you were to try to find the text of Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, you have between two and three manuscripts to find. If you were to try to find manuscripts of all of Homer's Iliad, you have less than half a dozen. 
of all of the ancient writings, the Bible has more manuscripts than virtually all of them put together. There are thousands upon thousands of manuscripts, all copied not with a Xerox machine, not printed off of a word processor, but copied by hand. And so we have instances here like this where there appears to be a discrepancy or an error. We can look at chapter 13, verse 1, where 1 Samuel tells us that Saul reigned for two years. And then immediately someone will come and say, Aha! The Bible's not true. Paul says in the book of Acts that Saul's reigned for 40 years. The Bible lies. You can't believe the Bible about anything. Now let's just stop and take a step back. The first thing here is we're talking about Saul's age, which really doesn't make any difference even in this chapter, let alone this book, let alone all of our theology. We're not talking about a verse about the deity of Christ or the atonement. And this is the best that people can come up with. We may not know the exact age of Saul in verse 1 of chapter 13. But there's even a better solution because you know the history Saul reigned, but the kingdom was taken from Saul, wasn't it? We're going to get there in chapter 15. And what happened when the kingdom was taken from Saul? Who was it given to? To David. And how do we know it was given to David? Because he was anointed as king. And at that point, Saul's reign becomes illegitimate. He's like a dictator in Venezuela. Or like the ruler of North Korea. He's in power, but he's not the legitimate king of Israel. David is. And so it's very easy to see that the two years apply to these chapters, 13, 14, and 15, that deal with the legitimate reign of Saul. And then the rest of his reign was a co-reign with David that was illegitimate. Now, in, in any event, what we have here is Saul gathering to himself a standing army. He is now starting to think like a king. He's not hiding with the baggage anymore. No, he is grabbing a standard army. And he is locating it centrally in Israel at Michmash. Now, Michmash is not just a funny-sounding name of a town. It is a centrally located town just a little bit north of Jerusalem, if you could picture that in your mind's eye. Or if you go to the back of your Bible to find a map, you may not find Michmash, but you can find Jerusalem. Just go up just a tiny bit. And it makes sense for Saul to have his standing army there. Now, Israel had not had a standing army before this. It had just had a militia, like in the days of the American Revolution. You just call people up, the farmer brings his own gun, and you go and fight. So Saul now has a standing army to defeat his enemies. And where would you put that army but in the middle of the country, so that if you need to strike north, you can, or east, or west, or south. Saul is starting to think like a king. And now is the very first time when we hear about Jonathan. We meet Jonathan in chapter 13, verse 2. And Jonathan goes out and he strikes down the Philistine garrison at Geba. Now, This actually appears to be what Samuel had told Saul to do back in chapter 10. Do you remember that odd turn of phrase we looked at? That Samuel told Saul to do what his hands had been given to do? And we looked at in other cases in the Bible, that meant attack. 
But Saul, you remember, wasn't exactly quick on the uptick. He was not exactly ready to go to war. So he was a bit passive. And he did not do what Samuel told him to do. Samuel said he was to attack this garrison and then go and to wait for him seven days at Gilgal. So now Jonathan actually starts things off. And Saul takes advantage of this. He calls the people to arms after this victory that Jonathan gets. And we may wonder why Saul doesn't take the initiative, why his son needs to do that. We may also wonder why Saul takes the credit for the victory. Because do you see what the ancient Israel uh, press release is? It's that Saul defeated the garrison. Now, we all know in a monarchy who puts out the press releases, right? So Saul is doing this to make himself look good. He's not being active, but he wants to look good. And, and this is a challenge that you and I have in life as well. You see, when things are going well, we are glad to be responsible, aren't we? We just push ahead. And we have no worries as long as things are going well. But there's also something here that's going on bubbling under the surface. There is this initial success, but now it takes a turn for the worse. You see, Saul was reluctant to attack the Philistines before in chapter 10. Here it took his son starting the action. And Saul himself still seems passive. Look at verse 4. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. It's not as if Saul went around gathering up the people. It's not as if Saul is being active. He's just waiting while the people come to him. Are we starting to see a pattern here in Saul? And we then see more clearly why Saul might have been reluctant to go to war with the Philistines. You see, after Jonathan's victory, there would have been all kinds of cheering in Israel. That is, until the Philistines find out. Look at verse 3. The Philistines heard of it. Cue the somber bad guy music. The Philistines now have Israel being a stench, a stink before them. They are not aware of what is going on. We could almost imagine the sight of a giant awakening. Now Israel thought they could handle the situation. After all, they had a king. And they also had a standing army. And and they just had won a victory, but now the big leaguers are here. Now the Philistines are drawing up as many chariots as the Israelites have troops and horsemen on top of it and soldiers so, num- so numerous that they can't be counted. You can just imagine the reaction in Israel. Uh oh. What have we gotten ourselves into? And you see, what happens is exactly that. 
the Israelites begin to run for the hills. You know that cliche, that turn of phrase. Well, it's, it's actually true here. They go and they run for the hills. They hide in the caves. They hide amongst the tombs. They want to get out of Dodge as fast as they can. You see, they are so eager to get out of this area that they hide in something called cisterns. Now, if you don't know what a cistern is, it could be several things, including just um, a hole that catches water. But perhaps one way that will help give us a vivid understanding of how desperate the Israelites are is a cistern makes an outhouse look like the Taj Mahal. Same purpose. They're willing to hide amongst the dead with tombs. They're willing to hide in cisterns just so that they can get away from the Philistines. And this shouldn't surprise us because Israel had been trusting in themselves and in their king. And what they saw was that they were not up to the task. And when that happens, they gave up. Now, this is another temptation for us, isn't it? We see it on the national level. We look out and we see all of the problems in our country. And what we do is Christians gather up their troops. We count up the number of legislators that we have. We gather up our funds. And then what happens is when we see that our resources aren't enough, we give up. We see it also on a personal level. When life and its problems get to be just too much for us, we want to give up. We can't handle it. We do the calculus and we know we are not up to the task. But you see, this was never how it was to be. What Israel and we forget is that they were never supposed to face the Philistines alone. The Lord was always to be their strength. Their greatest problem here is in forgetting the Lord. So, what does Saul do now? The Philistines are on the warpath. The Israelites are fleeing. What does he do now? This is where we see (coughs) that we are to trust instead of to use our sight. There is a test of faith that comes upon Saul from the Lord himself. Now think about this. How has Saul gotten himself into this predicament? If we all acknowledge this is a pretty bad place to be in, with Israelites fleeing, the Philistines surrounding you, and you're about to get into battle, how did Saul get himself in this spot? It's important we remember this. He got himself in this spot because Samuel told him to attack. And Samuel told him to go to this place. And Samuel told him to wait. You see, it may not seem like it, but God has Saul in exactly the place that he wants him. Now, there is a great deal of pressure on Saul. Not only is he in trouble, but things are getting worse by the day. Everywhere Saul looks, he is afraid. He's waiting for Samuel. Now this can apply to us as well. 
we are most fearful when we are looking out at the world and seeing things getting worse. We become afraid for our families. We become afraid for our nation. We become afraid for the church. What are we to possibly do? The good news for Saul is that he started out obeying the Lord. Now, day after day, he would wait for Samuel. Now, you can imagine what that would be like as each day progressed. He would be getting more and more concerned and nervous. He would be asking more and more, has anybody seen Samuel? When do you think Samuel's going to get here? Because somebody go look for Samuel. Wait, I heard that. Was that Samuel? Is Samuel here yet? Why isn't Samuel here? He told me to wait. You could just imagine how it is churning in his mind. But with each passing day, what Saul did was he forgot more and more God's promise that it would go well if he feared the Lord and served Him faithfully. Each day he became more and more nervous about what was going on. This is the critical juncture. As the situation gets worse, Saul is less likely to trust God. Our faith is tested not when there is nothing to lose. Our faith is tested when there is everything to lose. That is when we must trust the Lord. Think about it. What is the ultimate test of your faith? The ultimate test of your faith is with your eternal destiny. When you are trusting the Lord... With all of your eternity. That's when the stakes are the greatest. That's when we have to trust the Lord. We trust Him in spite of all that we see. In spite of all the noise that is around us. We trust the Lord when He says that Jesus is true and His work is true. And all we can do is rely on Jesus. Now unfortunately... Saul cracks under the pressure. He makes a foolish decision. He did wait, but he could not finish well. Now you may wonder why he waits into the seventh day, but he cannot wait through the end of the seventh day. You know, Can you just imagine the picture in your mind? Seven days Saul has been pacing and ranting and raving. And he finally says... Oh, forget about it. Bring me the sacrifice. And like two minutes after the sacrifice, Samuel wanders in. Could you just imagine that? Now, I imagine in my mind's eye, Saul putting on a good front, walking up to Samuel with a big smile. Oh, I'm glad you're here. We just did the sacrifice. Come on, we're ready to fight the Philistines. But what does Samuel do? Samuel says one of the most frightening sentences in the Bible. He says, what have you done? That should remind you of something. Another time when that is given is in the beginning of Genesis. When God comes to Adam who was told to obey the Lord's command and he did not and the Lord said, what have you done? Now, Saul's a little bit of a better act 
than Adam. Adam can't really figure out what to do, so he just tries to dump all the blame on Eve. That woman, the woman you gave me, that's who's to blame. She's to blame, and you're to blame. Saul tries to play it a little bit cooler. He blames all the circumstances. Listen, I tried as hard as I could. You have no idea how painful it was waiting. And all of these things happened. And it was such an emergency. And I couldn't wait any longer. And catch this. I forced myself to do this. You don't know how hard it is, Samuel. Now, the reason why Saul couldn't finish day number seven did not have anything to do with the time. It had to do with his heart. Let me tell you something very directly this morning, young people. Some of you may be here this morning because your parents make you. You may do certain things that are right because you don't want to listen to your parents. You don't want the grief, the static at home. You're just going to keep it up and you can do it and keep everything calm. What this story tells us is, is there comes a breaking point. You can only pretend for so long. If your heart is not in obedience, you will not obey the Lord. The reason Saul disobeyed is because he was disobedient in his heart. He had never bought in body and soul to trust God. If he had, he would have said, I know this is a really long time, but God gave me his word through Samuel, and God never breaks his word, so I'm going to wait and see what wonderful, miraculous thing God's going to do. Maybe giant hail is going to fall down like it did in Joshua's day. Maybe fire will fall from heaven and burn up the Philistines. I don't know, but I'm going to trust God. But you see, Samuel was just trying to go, excuse me, Saul was just trying to go through the motions. And there's a breaking point for all of us in going through the motions. And so there is no more dangerous place to be than in going through the motions of godliness. I don't care whether you're 6 years old, 16 years old, 36 years old, 86 years old. If you are trying to impress someone else with your godliness, it will fail. Saul gives us an example of that. Now what Saul is doing here is, he's not just usurping the work of the priests. I don't think this is an example of Saul doing the sacrifice himself. I think he has the priests doing the sacrifice for him, because the problem is not just wrong guy doing the sacrifice. The problem is more critical than that. You see, Saul is confessing with his actions that there are some emergencies that make God's word unnecessary. And if you don't think we think like that, imagine yourself in this scenario. I know I'm not supposed to steal, The Bible tells me not to steal. But this situation is so bad that that verse doesn't apply. I know I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loves the church. But this certain emergency is so bad, I get a mulligan on that verse. I know I'm supposed to obey my husband. But you don't know my situation, Pastor. I get a pass on this verse. I don't have to obey my parents in the Lord because the emergency is in front of me. You see, we do that all the time. 
We look at our circumstances and we decide that God's word doesn't apply because of the emergency. And think about the foolishness of that. Because it is in the emergency when we need God and his word most. You see, when the most crucial juncture was at hand, Saul thought that his kingdom could function on its own without God. And this is foolish. Now, obeying God here was the extraordinary thing to do. I can understand how we come to this text with some sympathy for Saul. He was patient. He waited six and a half days. The Israelites are abandoning him. The Philistines are all over the place. Come on, let's cut Saul a break. But you see, the problem is, obeying God is always the extraordinary thing to do. The foolishness of disobeying God cannot be seen by our circumstances. As a matter of fact, in most circumstances, it appears foolish to obey God. We can only truly see the wisdom of obedience when we look with the eyes of faith and not with sight on our circumstances. And so Samuel gives us an insight into this. He rebukes Saul harshly. He says, you have done foolishly. Now, what Samuel is not saying is, Saul, you're an idiot. He's not saying, what a dumb thing to do. That's not what foolish means in the Bible. I know we use that word that way. In the Bible, The one who is foolish is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14, verse 1. What Samuel is telling Saul is, you are acting as if God doesn't exist and his promises are not true. You are a fool, Saul. And so the loss that comes on Saul is catastrophic. He loses all of his dynasty. Now, This is true for us even if we're not king of Israel. You see, when we try to be wise without God, when we try to act as if he doesn't exist and his promises are not true, then all we get is foolishness. So now Israel and Saul are in real trouble. They have every reason to lose hope. Now, we can think about the Saul-eyed dynasty later. Because right now, it doesn't look like Saul's dynasty is going to last a week, let alone multiple generations. The Israelites have practically deserted Saul. We see that in verse 15. The Philistines are everywhere. We see this in verse 17. They, they are so Powerful that they go out in raiding companies in every direction and Saul can't do a single thing about it. They are unstoppable. And Israel is unprepared to fight. Now we know they don't have a standing army anymore. Most of them have fled. We know the Philistines are moving at will. But now in verse 19 we find out that Israel doesn't even have any weapons that nobody in the Israelite army has a sword or a spear. They've basically come together with an axe for chopping down wood. Or they've taken the blade off of their plow and they're carrying it with them on a stick. 
only Jonathan and Saul have swords or spears. And the Israelites are so powerless, they can't even sharpen their own farm implements. They have to go to the Philistines and pay a hefty sum just to get them sharpened. Israel is completely unprepared. But the real devastating blow comes in verse 15. It seems small. It's almost imperceptible. But it is crucial. You see, the real devastating blow is, and Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal. Everything else was bad. But this is worse. Saul is now without the direction and guidance of the Lord because the Lord's prophet has abandoned him. He no longer has the word of God. He no longer has the prophet of God. Now, think about that. He's isolated himself from what he needed most at this time, God's word. (coughs) Think about how that would look in our current context. Are you concerned about the direction of our country? Are you concerned as you watched the violence, the death, and the racism in Charlottesville this weekend? What do you think about the educational system as it attacks Christians and their faith? Do you feel that the church has lost its power? Now I want you to think about this. Think about how we must view the importance of God's word and keeping it near to us and obeying it. How could we possibly handle the circumstances that are in our lives? How could we possibly live walking forward if we do not have hope that comes from the word of God? You see, that's the real devastating blow here. Saul has lost the word of God. There is a hopelessness. They have, Israel has every reason to give up hope. So where's the hope in this story? You know I've got to try to find one, right? I'm the pastor. It's not at the end of the chapter. The end of the chapter ends on a very ominous and dark note in verse 23. And the garrison of the Philistines garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Dun, dun, dun. We don't expect something good to happen here. There's no rescue in verse, in chapter 13. There's no sudden fix that God brings. We have every reason to lose hope, but where is the hope? The hope comes from us knowing our Lord and knowing His story in the Bible. Because we've seen this often before, haven't we? The total helplessness of God's people at the Red Sea, outside Jericho. When the same Philistines attacked in chapter 7 of this book. When the Ammonites were coming after Israel. The total helplessness of the people of God. And you see, that's God's way. 
He creates deliverance out of nothing. You see, we are not dependent on a king who does not obey like Saul. We have a king who is after God's own heart. The Lord Jesus Christ obeyed every step of the way. In every instance in which the law of God was put before him, he obeyed. For every instance that you disobeyed, he obeyed. We even have a theological term for it. We call it the active obedience of Christ. He obeyed in each and every instance. And we see it, perhaps in no better place than in the temptation of our Lord in Matthew 4. As Satan himself came and tempted him in every way possible. And our Lord Jesus Christ obeyed his Lord and our God. How? By leaning on God's word. You see, Jesus is the king who obeys Jesus has conquered the worst set of circumstances possible. As sinners, we are lost and dead in our sins. We are unable to come to God. We are unable to pay our debts. But Jesus did something that we could never have expected. We could never have even asked for. He sacrificed Himself so that we would be rescued, so that we would be forgiven, so that we could have life. When you see trouble, how will you look past it? Are you ready to have the eyes of faith that see the promise and the provision of the Lord? Do you find hope in the midst of hopelessness, knowing that Jesus is enough, no matter what else you are experiencing. Beloved, Saul threw away a kingdom because his disobedience was a reflection of his heart. The kingdom of God can be yours today, not because of your obedience, but because Jesus has changed your heart. Because Jesus has called you To himself. This is the great king that we serve. He brings hope to the hopeless. He brings life to the dead, sight to the blind. He cannot be stopped, for the promises of the Lord our God are always yea and amen in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you have given us this episode to remind us of our dependence upon you. Lord, help us this day to see the Lord Jesus Christ in all of our circumstances and in him to find hope and peace. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen.